A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now, it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Shirley. So, I remember when I was in seminary taking a course on exegesis of Luke's gospel, and that's a familiar word or has become a familiar word for seminary students. It's not exogesis. Um, it is bringing something out of the text um, that is already there. I, I'm not sure when we were studying Luke's gospel if we were uh, really aware of the irony of a bunch of students paying a lot of money to learn about how to read the Bible better. And then we complained when our instructor insisted, required us to read Luke's gospel, the whole thing, a couple times a week in one sitting. Like, you couldn't get up to, the go, to go to the bathroom. You couldn't pause for a meal. You couldn't stop to, like, Instagram a picture of your cozy devotional and like pumpkin spice latte beside it. You just had to sit and read Luke's carefully ordered account cover to cover, but just in one sitting. And it's amazing. I would recommend this. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour. It's amazing what this experience teaches you about like the flow and the context and the arc and recurring and developing themes in the text that a zoomed in verse-by-verse verse approach misses oftentimes. So the end of chapter 9, right before the chapter 10 that we're in here, bears a lot of fruit with this approach. Um, for 
learning how to neighbor in the good news. That's the series we're in right now, Home Economics, Neighboring in the Good News. And this is a series uh, coming up on our fourth year as a church together that we're kind of doubling back down on some of the like core DNA things of, of what we think God is doing and what we hope to be about in this place. So Luke 9, 51 starts this like grand momentum towards the cross. It's called uh, Luke's travel narrative. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. And then a couple of verses later, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, a voice from like the peloton around him pipes in and says, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Isn't that a great voice? Like, I'm not so sure that the, whoever said that uh, really understood what they were saying, but wouldn't it have been good to have said that to Jesus? I'll go wherever you will go, Jesus. I think it's kind of a looming statement because we, we know where Jesus is going as he sets his face to Jerusalem. To follow Jesus wherever means to follow him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to much fanfare. It also means to follow him back out the gates of Jerusalem on Friday to Golgotha. It means to follow Jesus into the neighborhood and to follow him in both his death and his resurrection. It means to follow Jesus into the new creation wherever it might spring up and with whomever. So then chapter 10 begins on this note. I'll follow you wherever you go. And I think chapter 10 might be the most important chapter in the Gospels about being a good neighbor. It starts with Jesus sending the 72 on mission. Two by two, sheep among wolves. They go door to door, knocking, looking for people of peace. Someone who is not against you. Maybe they're not really for you yet, but they... They receive you and they don't slam the door in your face. They're like, that's enough. In the neighborhood, this is so vital. This has been something we've been a major benefactor of as Oak Church here from the beginning. Like finding people with whom we can have enough common ground and common goals that, that we, we describe these things as hope, healing, and hospitality in Christ. And it kind of coheres and expands upon many of the values our neighbors have, things they want for flourishing in the neighborhood, things they want for their families, things they want for people who have been here for years. So the church on mission becomes then a witness to what hope, healing, and hospitality in Christ can be and look like in 3D. And these people of peace are welcome to and invited uh, to help us with, and in some cases we even learn from them how to make that reality, how to make all of that a reality in this place. So these apostles, and that, that word means sent one, think like postal, post office, apostles, they return to Jesus after having been sent out, and they're saying things like, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're so excited about what they've seen, what they've done, what they've experienced, this power that they've joined with in their place. And Jesus tells them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see because they've been given this insight into this deeper reality that is right 
in the middle of all of us that we, we often miss and don't see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So neighboring in the good news requires this sort of missionary mentality. Leslie Newbegin, who's a missionary bishop, famously said, the missionary must be the salt which dissolves in the meat, disappears and dies in it. And I think what he means by that is a missionary is so good for those for whom he was sent. You're going in presence which God has already long been at work in our place. We have eyes to see and, and God helps open our eyes of other, open our eyes and the eyes of others to bear witness to this bringing forth and uh, like flavor and preservation is what salt does in our neighbors and neighborhood. And then, so Jesus sends these apostles at the beginning of the chapter. And then the, the chapter kind of shifts to its center. This is what Shirley just read for us. The parable of the good Samaritan is how we know it. A few helpful notes for context on this story, because this is one of those stories we might just be a little too familiar with to actually hear well. First off, Jesus uses like a brilliant device to answer this, quote, legal scholar, someone who knew the Torah very well and prided himself in its interpretation and its application. This guy wasn't just some schmo. Like he he knew the law and he wanted he wanted to follow it. And so Jesus answers his question with a question. First off, when someone calls Jesus teacher, he says teacher and asks him the question about what one must do to inherit eternal life. In Luke's gospel it's it often kind of foreshadows someone who can't see or someone who doesn't have the kind of discernment to see what Jesus is going to say. There's kind of a really subtle subtext of conflict boiling under the veneer of civility and respect. Like, teacher, what are you going to say now to me, right? Oftentimes what follows is kind of a gotcha question. Like, this happens in Matthew 22. It says, teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and you teach... Uh, the way of God in accordance to the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay imperial tax to Caesar? Right? This, this is so polite. I think it's almost like a southern person was, telling the, was asking this question, right? This is like all this bless your heart stuff. And then tell us your opinion on this very controversial thing. And we're going to try to like pin you between the rock of nationalism if Jesus says always and everywhere pay taxes. Or this hard place of, of like insurrection if Jesus opts for evading taxes of this occupying empire. Teacher, what do you think about this, right? It's, it's not, so, not so nice, right? So Jesus answers this guy's question about eternal life, this inquiry, with a fairly non-controversial statement. He affirms Israel's Shema, the heartbeat of Torah, this, this like foundational prayer that they would have prayed multiple times a day. And according to Walter Brueggemann, it's almost that Jesus invents a new word here. He takes love for God and love for neighbor, and he makes them so inextricable, it's almost like he created this word God-neighbor. 
Like, no spaces, no hyphen, just God neighbor. Because you can't love God without showing what that love looks like with your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without the love God gives you. So the lawyer wants more clarity, as lawyers often do. Perhaps maybe a loophole can be found in this new law. But rather than a loophole, Jesus jumps down this rabbit hole and starts this story, this parable. He, redi- he redirects the man. He, he redirects us into this deeper and more challenging reality. He uses this classic rabbinic move, not altogether different than like jokes. And James used the form of the knock-knock joke to mastery last night. But this would be like the, the classic, like a priest, a rabbi, and an atheist walk into a bar like the rule of three, right? And you might expect the third character in Jesus' story to be more on par, maybe even like the excellent version of a priest and a rabbi. But then the punchline hits and the audience would gasp at the revelation that the third character, who we think would be a protagonist, winds up being a Samaritan, their enemy, the one whom they can't worship with, the one whom they're threatened by. Like this scandal might be a little softened for us because everyone appeals to the story of the Good Samaritan. Like public figures including George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Martin Luther King Jr., Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, and even our current president have all appealed to or alluded to the story of the Good Samaritan. Hospitals, NGOs, mission charity organizations all bear the name of this helper. There are even laws to protect good Samaritans from liability for stopping to help. But doesn't the fact that we still refer to this mythical character as like the good one of all Samaritans kind of reveal something about this punchline? Like it gives it a little more punch to the punchline. There's a biblical scholar, uh, I think she's at Vanderbilt, Amy Jill Levine, And she gives kind of a window into, like, the indignity of this story, right? Um, She tells it as a modern-day tale. So somehow, um, if this happened today, like, Samaria has various names. The West Bank, Occupied Palestine, Greater Israel. And she tells, I'm an Israeli Jew on my way to Jerusalem to Jericho, and I'm attacked, beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. Two people should have stopped to help, but instead they passed by. One was a Jewish medic from the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, The other was a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. But the person who takes compassion on me and shows mercy is a Palestinian Muslim with sympathies to Hamas a political party whose charter not only anticipates Israel's destruction, but also depicts Jews as subhuman demons responsible for all the world's problems. The parable of the good Hamas member might be difficult for people in support of Israel's existence. Where Jesus is Samaritan, we today have the parable of the good Jew told in the streets of Ramallah. So you can see the scandal in this story that we think we know so well. In short, the Good Samaritan winds up being a placeholder for the most hated, 
most dangerous, most unlikely person who might actually wind up saving your life. It's no wonder that throughout church history, when people read this story, when they look into the face of this fictional Samaritan, they see features that resemble Jesus. The man of constant sorrows, one from whom we hide our faces, the despised one with no esteem, by whose stripes we are healed. It's also, uh, we, we have this privileged insight as Christians to know that when we look at the cross, we, we start to get a little idea, we see with some clarity how Jesus can be both the one in the ditch and the one pulling us out from the ditch at the same time. That Jesus is somehow the victim and the victor the surprising salvation of the world. A little bit of all that and a little bit of foreshadowing towards that is what's happening in this story. You can see these parables are kind of malleable. They get in and and they start to rearrange the furniture a little bit. For us, doesn't this call us towards a sort of neighbor love that we might normally shy away from? Like when we move into a new building or a new neighborhood, we typically take stock from who we meet and their habits and and what they look like. And we kind of construct this short mental list of who we could be friends with and who we hope not to have to waste a whole lot of relational bandwidth on, right? Like you know within like a week who you're going to try to be friends with and who you're going to try to avoid at the mailboxes, right? But one theologian helps us see, the lawyer is told by Jesus, in effect, to stop trying to live this way and be willing to die, to be willing to be lost rather than to be found, to be a neighbor to the one who, in the least of his brethren, is already a neighbor to a whole world of losers. He's talking about Jesus the neighbor to a whole world of losers? What if it's precisely the strange or the estranged neighbor on your street that you need most for your life? What if we're only as strong as our weakest relationship to our neighbors, right? If we lack imagination for how important our neighbors are, or who they are, or how Jesus might already be in our midst, we also, I think, lack the attention to even pay attention to this stuff. Sometimes we're just too hurried to see this. In the 1970s, there was a pair of social psychologists at Princeton, and it's a really famous study that you might have heard of, and and they, they really picked on the divinity students they had at Princeton Seminary. And they got all these students to participate in a study because students normally participate in studies if you give them like $25 and a meal, right? Um, and and these, are, these are do-gooder students, seminary students. We have a few of you. Welcome. Um, they invited the, these researchers, split them up into two groups that they didn't know that they were in, invited them to fill out a questionnaire and to preach sermons on the Good Samaritan. Uh, 
half of the experiment was told that they were behind schedule after filling out their questionnaire and they needed to hurry across campus. It was about a 10 minute walk and you're already seven minutes behind. And they had to preach their sermon on the Good Samaritan. The other half was allowed to move towards the second part of their task at their own pace and there wasn't any pressure to get there. On their way, you guys kind of know how the story goes, right? On their way, they planted a man in between the first station and the second who was slumped over and moaning, who coughed twice because you need to have regularity in experiments, right? Uh, and, and he was planted by the researchers. They measured who stopped to be a good Samaritan on the way to preach about the good Samaritan to the man. About 63% of the unhurried participants stopped to offer the man aid, while only 10% of the group that was in a rush stopped. 10%. This might seem like such a setup to us. Like, how did they not know? How could they possibly be so focused on their task at hand that was related to the task that they wouldn't be able to see this man in their midst? How'd they get so caught up in the, I, the idea of being a good neighbor that they miss the opportunity to actually be a good neighbor to a, an actual neighbor? So to help with this, uh, I promised at the beginning of this sermon series that we would have some, some activity almost every week. Um, last week we had the blessing of the books in which you guys got to participate. This week we won't count y'all fanning yourself as activity in the sermon. Um, I need a few volunteer ushers really fast. This would be great. Just pop up. Hustle. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Oh, look at all of the ushers. So you're going to get these, these things, these cards, and you can hang them on your refrigerator. And this is an exercise to help us love our actual neighbors. This is predicated on the idea that to actually begin to love our neighbors, we should probably know who they are and the beginning of knowing who your neighbors are is to even just know their name. So you'll see on there, there are eight boxes, kind of in Brady Bunch format. You're in the middle. And your street or your building or where you live might not be set up in an actual block or a row. So we're going for the eight most proximate people to you. And this is a great thing to do with kids. Um, and, and the goal is... By, by memory, first, to just start, and, and you could do this now or you could save this to later, start listing your eight most proximate neighbors. You could even list a couple notes on them, how you know them. Um, I, I know Jim because he walks his dog regularly. Um, I know uh, these guys because they have kids my age. Uh, I know uh, the people on both sides of me well. You could even maybe list some things you know about them. Um, there's been some amazing stories um, how our Oak Church Garden has led to um, chance encounters that we believe is, is what God's already doing, uh, where you learn something really vital about someone, like that, that they're in um, pretty serious treatment for an illness and that we can pray for them in that. Maybe you list that on there. And this is not a shame exercise. Um, uh, in some ways, this could be an impetus. Um, ha well, first, how many people ha live in a different place now than they did last year? Like a different building or a different home. Yeah, right? Okay. So you guys are privileged because um, it's still easy to go ask people their name because you're, you're, you're new, right? 
But if you're not new, you've been around for a while, this is a great opportunity to do this. Um, to, uh, it's, a great, it's a great start towards this. And you'd be amazed when you open up these relationships, even in a small way, and maybe you put this on your fridge, include your kids uh, in on this, it'd be amazed how, how you're probably going to be more likely to pray for them. You're probably going to be more likely to say hello when you see them walking a dog. You're probably more likely to engage uh, with them, especially if you're praying for them by name. This, again, is just a tool, it's just a start to loving your actual neighbors. So I think it's this sort of attention and this sort of concreteness that is lauded by Jesus in the final part of our neighboring chapter. As Jesus encounters the sisters, Mary and Martha. Isn't it wild how all these stories are stitched together? You wouldn't have known that because you normally hear them preach one at a time in an isolated way. But we go from the sending to the Good Samaritan to Mary and Martha. And we find this other subversion. We assume in this chapter focused on mission and hands-on healing that Martha, the doer, would be held up as the example. After all, when you want to start a movement, you want workhorses like Martha. Martha is not doing anything wrong. It seems like Martha herself is a little upset by this and notices the disparity between what her and her sister are doing in the presence of Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I can only imagine the backstory behind that and like their whole childhood that have led up to, like, tell her to help me. And Jesus, the Lord, answers, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. And indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I might read right over it. What people call Jesus and what Luke refers to Jesus as is really important, especially for Luke. Right here it is Lord. Sure, Lord means the one who's in charge, but it also means Yahweh, the Lord God. Martha says, Lord, help me. And Jesus, the Lord, answers. The Lord God is involved in paying attention and creating space. Mary has tapped into this grand story of the God whom has chosen to neighbor with creation, to make room for us. For all the hospitality that's shown in the activity of Martha, it's Mary, by her attention, who has chosen the one better thing that can't be taken away. I wonder if this is also instructive for our neighboring, to pay attention, to, to put air in our habits and days where we feel so, so jammed, so packed, like so scheduled down to the minute, to put air into our days, to create like front, front porch encounters with like enough no agenda to be available for the Lord to work in our everyday. Christine Pohl says, the practice of hospitality forces these abstract commitments to our neighbor, stranger, and enemy into really practical and personal expressions of respect and care 
for actual neighbors and strangers and en enemies. So there's these twin moves of universalizing the neighbor that we could even be neighbors to the Samaritan and they could be our neighbor, but also personalizing the neighbor. That's at the core of hospitality. But we're so tempted to get it exactly opposite, like to be let off the hook for this difficult, demanding discernment of what all this takes. I specifically remember a few years back, I was visiting this little Baptist church who was simultaneously incredibly proud of their wonderful missions funding for uh, building schools and funding missionaries and passing out Bibles in Southeast Asia. And they displayed this really proudly on this nice laminated map with photos and everything. And then a few minutes later, the same pastor who was telling me about all this was telling me just how they're at their wits end and how they hope to part ways with the immigrant refugee congregation that they're renting space to because their drums are too loud and because when they make food in the fellowship hall, it's too garlicky, right? Like the abstract to them was so exciting and laudable, but the actual was kind of loud and stinky, right? Like, isn't that so true about being a neighbor? Like it sounds like such a great thing to do, and then when you get down to it, like people want stuff from you and can kind of take too much from you. That's also kind of the first page of the handbook to parenting, that it's really loud and stinky, right? The irony of all of this like, it's really easy to see because it's not us, but I think we do this too. Like, anyone that's driven in a car with me while listening to the radio knows how grumpy I get when the uh, commercials come on, and they're targeting this mythical market called RDU. Say, hey, RDU, I got this great deal for you. And, like, RDU's not an actual place aside from the airport, right? Like, that's RDU. But in an effort for them to spread their advertising dollar to be relevant to the maximum amount of ears, they wind up not speaking to anyone in particular. I wonder if that's been our default neighboring style too. They're trying to reach everyone and not actually talking to anyone in particular. I know this has been mine for most of my adult life. So, but like in actuality, there is no RDU, like there's only cities in neighborhoods and blocks and streets and families and like actual neighbors, right? And I think Jesus's Samaritan story opens up the possibility that literally anyone can be our neighbor. I think we better pray for courage and imagination to embrace that reality in Christ. I think Jesus's interaction with the sisters opens up the possibility that you are called to know and to love and to organize your life in such a way that you can become an expert on the small handful of people who are already right in front of you or whom God's going to put in front of you. Because sustained attention and availability will create the conditions for the most important thing in the universe, the only thing that's going to last an encounter with the Lord who is at work in real lives. I want to close with this quote, and it, it really feels like it would be a tragedy to end a sermon on being a good neighbor without some nod to Fred Rogers. And so Fred Rogers 
always with an amazing cardigan on the right. And on the left is a man that some of you might know. His name is Henry Nouwen. And I love this quote from Nouwen. I think it is maybe inspirational for us as we want to walk away from here with this great spiritual insight to change our lives. And this is such a normal, everyday insight. He says, more and more, the desire grows in me to simply walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it's not as simple as it seems. My own desire is to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project that's so strong that it'll take uh, my time by meetings, conferences, study groups, workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans. It's difficult not to organize people around an urgent cause and not to feel like you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but you truly love them. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you do not simply like us. You do not even just love us in the abstract, but you show us with words, handshakes, and hugs that you truly love us. That you've given us Jesus who lived this small, slow life of cosmic ramifications for the salvation of this world and that we can join in with that by your spirit. Lord, give us patience. Give us attention to detail. Um, give us eyes and ears and minds and hands to, to join in this work. Um, help us meet persons of peace who might surprise us um, as gifts. And Lord, when we're uh, hurting, uh, give us uh, even someone surprising like a Samaritan to lift us up and to, to be part of our healing. Uh, Lord, we thank you for always surprising us, uh, even as we rely on you for strength and assurance. Um, Lord, uh, prepare us to be surprised uh, by what you're going to say to us and where you're going to send us. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.